we've raised taxes. Or have we? This week, the spring supplementary operating budget adjustment locked in our tax rates for this year. And whether it was an increase, decrease, or held the line is a matter of perspective, apparently. Plus, we'll talk about how the city is continuing to handle the pandemic and all the best places to golf at on Monday. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 83. And right off the top, I want to let you know about a new feature we've got going on. If you head on over to voicelink.fm slash speakingmunicipally, that'll be in the show notes below or on the website. You can click that link and record a voice message. If you have a question, comment, probably a question, it limits you to a minute. So you can't phrase your question as a life story. (laughs) (laughs) If you submit a question, we will play it on our show and answer it and engage with it if it's a decent question. Um, So that is the bar you have to clear. The bar to clear to get on this podcast, very low. (laughs) It's not a huge bar. As exemplified by our rapid fire segment that seems to happen every week. The city has implemented a new shared street approach on a selection of downtown streets that have high density and no transit service. These streets will be signed at 20 kilometers per hour and open to local traffic only, as well as people walking and cycling. At a press conference unveiling the changes, Interim City Manager and Lieutenant Colonel in the War on Cars, Adam Lachlan, challenged Edmontonians. Quote, go on, say, why don't we just make it 10 kilometers an hour? Why don't we just make it zero? Try me. See how low I go. End quote. We did not learn, as of press time, if city traffic engineers had quite figured out how to implement a negative speed limit as of yet. When I wrote that, I put in Lieutenant Colonel to see if you would get it right, and you did not. No, I didn't. Alberta's chief medical officer of health has made the difficult decision this week to cancel Christmas this year. Dr. Hinshaw was seen being uncomfortably ushered up to the podium by a collection of ministers, all dreading the idea of bringing the bad news that Alberta would be keeping its distance from Santa this year, causing at least 3,000 elves to be temporarily laid off. While the province recognizes families will be upset, it was, quote, completely untenable from an epidemiological standpoint to send a fat man down the chimney of every house in the country, complete with soot and all, while we're fighting off a respiratory virus transmitted by coughing. On top of that, mediation with the union up north could not work out a remuneration agreement that did not include cookies, and we can't be sharing food with strangers right now, end quote. The conference was topped with an enthusiastic Premier Kenny consoling the province, saying, quote, while this is unfortunate, the Prairie Buffalo didn't celebrate Christmas. Last year, we talked about TLC for LRT, a city project to update the capital line by closing large portions of the LRT for long periods of time. This process will be continuing starting May 3rd with the full closure of McKernan Belgravia Station. The closure of the station, which the city notes has the least boardings on the capital line, came as a shock to residents of the affluent neighborhood. Said one resident, quote, I worked hard to select a perfect, large home for my family, using dividends from the investments of the trust I inherited. I was led to believe that I would receive special premium treatments from the city in all aspects, and now I find out that it's only in most aspects. Unacceptable. End quote. The city of Edmonton responded that it heard residents' concerns and that golf courses will be permitted to reopen on Monday. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB, and this episode is brought to you by Back to School Again, a podcast about midlife learners. The next season, presented in partnership with Athabasca University, highlights the power of online learning, which I would say most learning is right now. 
Host Katrina Ingram interviews guests about how the internet has transformed education, the role of microlearning and micro-credentialing, and a new course offering called Power Ed. She will also share what she's learned from a Power Ed course on the business applications of machine learning. You can find Back to School Again on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it at backtoschoolagain.ca. That's backtoschoolagain.ca. So this week, we had the Spring Supplementary Operating Budget Adjustment, or SOSOBA, if you prefer, and City Council decided to set the tax rate for this year. And what did they set the tax rate at? Because if you read three different news articles, I think you'll get three different answers. Not to mention the mayor's blog post and the city of Edmonton's news release. Yes. So Monday, they looked at the budget adjustment. And then on Wednesday, they set the tax rate, which will influence all of the bills we're about to receive. So it took me a little while to get this straight, but I think I've got it straight. So bear with me for a minute or two. I'm just going to explain this quickly. The budget that the city of Edmonton has is about $3 billion and a little over half, 1.7 of that comes from property taxes. And one of the things you need to know about property taxes is there's two types. There's residential, those are houses, and there's non-residential, generally businesses. There's some other two, but that's the, the gist of it. And each of those residential and non-residential have what's called a tax rate. And that's made up of two parts, a municipal tax rate, which the city of Edmonton sets, and the provincial or education taxes, which the province sets. Now, the province already decided this year that it was going to reduce that education portion. So 6.3% lower for residential, 10.9% lower for non-residential. So a significant decrease coming from the provincial side. Council's job this week was to set the municipal part of that tax rate for both residential and non-residential. And what they ultimately decided to do was set the tax rate to increase 2.5% for residential taxpayers and 0% for non-residential. And if you take into account the provincial changes, that means the overall tax rate goes down by 2% for non-residential, so for businesses, and it's 0% for uh, residential taxpayers. So if I'm following what you're saying there, while council increased the tax rate, the effect to taxpayers is for homes, 0%, and for businesses, too lower. But essentially what they're doing is they're shifting the tax burden from businesses to residents. So residents pay a bit more and businesses pay a bit less. That's right. They're taking advantage of the province's reduction to make the overall rate that you end up paying lower. And they're keeping an increase of some kind. The original proposal was 1.3% for both residential and non-residential. They decided to go zero for businesses and 2.5% and for residential. They have to keep that increase because we still have things that we need to pay for as a city and we don't have any other way to do it. Um, so they basically said, well, we can take advantage of the fact that the province has lowered this tax rate, um, still increase our taxes to a certain amount, and then we'll be able to cover those costs. The, yeah, the really interesting thing is that they shifted that tax burden to residential property owners this time. I think it's interesting to talk about a bit of the politics of this situation, though, because you'll recall when the UCP took government uh, back eons ago when that happened, one of the things they did was they increased that education requisition of the municipal taxes. And it was effectively the provincial government increasing your municipal taxes. And we talked about it at the time as a little bit of a political football. The province wants to raise taxes, but doesn't want the sort of negatives of raising those taxes. So it sort of shifts the football over to the municipalities and they're forced to 
eat it and they're forced to take all the political heat for raising taxes. That's right. So one might say, well, you're still raising taxes just because the province lowered some taxes. But that's a cut both ways scenario. If the city took the heat for raising the taxes initially when it was the province raising the education portion, shouldn't the city get the credit when the province lowers the education portion? Maybe I don't need an answer here, but I think that's a little bit of an interesting rhetorical political football that was played this week. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And that would help explain why the city of Edmonton's news release and the mayor, for instance, focused primarily on that 2% decrease for businesses. That's the message that they really wanted to send. Well, we should note, of course, that what you end up paying at the end of the day will really depend on where you live. So whether you live in a single family home or a multifamily home. So, you know, one of my pet peeves about talking about taxes all the time is we get the typical, you know, single family home and what you will pay for that. Um, In this case, you know, it would have been about a $30 savings for residential taxpayers had we, you know, kept it with the original plan. But interestingly, um, the vote to do what they did to to have this net effect be a freeze for residential and a 2% decrease for businesses passed nine to four. And the four people that voted against it are four names that you don't typically see on the same side of a vote. Councillors Nickel, Banga, Paquette, and Knack. The only sort of rationale we got around these four, of course, we didn't hear anything from Mike Nickel or Mobanga, but um, Councillor Paquette talked about uh, the fact that you know businesses really need rent support, and that has to come from the province, not from the city of Edmonton. And and he said the answer is not to increase what we had already planned for residents, which was about one point four percent originally, but rather to take a look at how to get that budget back to zero. So he wanted to look for other ways to cut as opposed to shift from businesses to residences. This is a great microcosm of why municipal politics is great. Because if this was a provincial vote, you would have it clear cut along party lines. You wouldn't have these interesting skews of people switching sides. But in this case, you have Nickel and Banga who are probably voting for it for conservative, no based reasons, whatever Nickel and Banga usually do. But Paquette, you'll have him on the same side because typically for Paquette, it's not good enough. He's not voting because he doesn't like some of these changes. He's saying these changes aren't quite enough. We're not helping people as much as we need to be. And then you have Knack, who's this weird technocratic, easily convinced, open-minded counselor who goes into every debate and is like, yeah, good point. And then his vote can be wherever at right. the end of it. Right. So you'll get these four together where party politics would never allow these four to be aligned on the same side. It's just one of the very fascinating things that I love about municipal politics. Yeah, I agree completely. On the other side, we heard from Councillor Henderson. He voted in favor of the um, 0% increase for businesses and said it would have a profound impact on businesses uh, rebounding after COVID-19. And he said many of his constituents supported this option. And I want to read the quote that he has in the, in I think it was CBC here. He says, quote, I think because they recognize that our ability to bounce back as a city is going to be far more dependent on making sure our businesses are healthy than whether or not we can give a $30 break to homeowners this year, end quote. And you know, I also saw something from the chamber this week. They've been putting out this weekly survey of local businesses. And I think the latest version is our results show that, you know, maybe a third of businesses 
wouldn't be able to survive another four weeks of the lockdown. And so you had um, Janet Riopel, their president and CEO, talking about, you know, getting cash into the hands of our job creators needs to be the priority. It certainly seems like, you know, the nine councillors, including the mayor that voted for this, were trying to send a message to business that we're here for you and, and we support you, which is a fine message to send. But if you look at the documentation for what this actually results in, it's a savings of $46 per $100,000 worth of assessment. So, I mean, the businesses that are going to get this overall 2% decrease, it's not like it's going to help them hire their staff or pay their rent or any of that kind of stuff. So it just seemed a little bit of, you know, virtue signaling to me rather than actual impact, even if, you know, say, for example, Councillor Henderson was talking about it that way. It always strikes me as such a stupid argument, I'll say, just to talk about these taxes and these small percentage increases as meaningful. If your business is going to fail or succeed because of $46, your business was going to fail or succeed anyway. This can't be the thing that breaks the camel's back. Um, But I think the other interesting aspect of this is it really shows probably for the next election how counselors are able to sort of choose their own facts and present a message that isn't technically wrong. So like you said, the city and the mayor's release were very focused on we have a 0% increase for residents and a 2% decrease for businesses, Mm -hmm. which isn't technically wrong, um, though the municipal portion did increase for residences and businesses. Um, And then you had John Zadick, who he said, I was going into this meeting to hold the line. I wanted a no increase. And he touted this out on his Facebook page as a victory. We've done it. We've convinced this spendy council to hold the line. And then Mike Nickel took a different tack where he said, all these news reports are a lie. Your taxes went up 2.5%. This was a tax increase. Spending is out of control at City Hall. Right. And none of the three are technically wrong, but they're all presenting a wildly different story. Yeah, no, you're right. That's super interesting. And that's why it took me so long to read through this and really understand what actually happened because you kept seeing 2% here and minus 2% here and 2.5 over here. And, you know, your eyes kind of glaze over at first. And so it's the perfect scenario for them to take it and use it as they wish. Yeah, it was really fascinating to especially read the Facebook comments on all of the different posts, especially on John D's post where he was celebrating the 0% increase. And then people are coming in the comments and saying, wait, what? But this news article is saying that we increased and this other one isn't. What's going on? Everyone is very confused. And I think this is a benefit. If we can get this many people to engage with their municipal taxation, I like that's a win. That is a win. Yeah, you're right. That's a good way to look at it. There was some losses this week, though. Um, the city had to continue to deal with the coronavirus and 900 more city employees were laid off or temporarily laid off. Right. On Monday, when they looked at the Sasoba, as you said earlier, um, the layoffs were a big part of this um, to to get to $90.7 million in savings, which is what they ultimately approved. There's the layoff of these 900 staff, about half transit operators, the rest are in administrative and community liaison, HR, technology positions, but they said all city departments are affected. The other thing they did is a hiring freeze, which kind of surprised me that they hadn't already done that, or maybe they did, and this was just the official 
confirmation of that. And of course, council themselves also took a slight budget cut. They reduced all of their expense budgets by 10%, which is just a bit under $700,000 in savings. It was interesting, I found, that uh, council did decide to reduce their ward budgets because while I appreciate that they did it, and I think it was a good idea to do it, Mm -hmm. I do feel that might be a bit of a problem going forward because the ward budgets were established so that councillors were able to engage with constituents, purchase things for their offices, and do all things that previously councillors might have paid out of pocket for, which gave a sort of richness where a rich counselor would outperform someone who wasn't personally wealthy. And we really want to level that playing field. And that's the same reason why city council doesn't vote on their pay increases and decreases because they don't want it to be a political football. I find that if the ward budgets are now this sort of slush fund that they can throw back at the city for political gain, we're sort of in that same scenario that we were in before we established the committee that establishes council's pay. Now, I get we're in a pandemic. This is extenuating circumstances. I just wouldn't like this to be something that we see happen again. Yeah, I suspect they looked at this and said, you know, people are having to take cuts all over the place, whether they've lost their jobs or whatever the situation is. You know, we need to to send a signal that we're doing the same thing. You know, just as you hear CEOs and executives at, uh, at corporations across the country taking pay cuts, salary reductions, things like that. You know, it's kind of in the same vein as that. So I definitely hear what you're saying, but it does feel to me like this is a one-off extreme kind of circumstance. Yeah, we haven't had a situation like this since, what, 1917, I think, is the last so- something of this scale. We'll, we'll give them a pass for now. And we might not have to give them a pass for too much longer. Uh, we're recording Thursday night. Uh, Thursday at 4, uh, there was a press conference scheduled for 3.30 where Premier Kenny outlined the let's reopen the economy plan. And we're not going to get too in-depth because it just happened. The city has issued a press release saying they need you know a couple days to work through it and what the city's implications will be. But there were a couple things in there, especially the day zero things, that really caught both of our eyes. Right. So May 14th is the the sort of headline date that a lot of stuff will happen. They talked about these three stages, but they're not waiting until that for everything. So on May 4th, some things are opening up right away. Things like surgeries. You'll recall they had paused non-essential surgeries to make sure that the health system had capacity for people suffering from COVID-19. That makes a lot of sense. Dental work and other sort of medical procedures are now allowed to happen on on Monday. And golf courses. I was like, <laughs> one of these things is not like the others. So you're right. Um, and we just love to rag on golf courses on the show because it golf is that one thing that rich people do that poor people aren't allowed to do. And it's just it is the trophy of privilege is to play golf. The thing about golf courses is and This is where I get on the other side of this issue compared to, I think, most of the people in my circle. I think this is probably a good change. Golf, you're holding your club, you're hitting a ball, and there's no one around because there's no one else allowed on the course. You have to pay a lot of money to be the only person really there. They're still leaving clubhouses closed and everything, but you can just go in that big field and hit a little white ball around with your club. I don't think it's necessarily a bad change. I don't think golf courses necessarily had to be closed in the first place, 
But I do agree that the um, urgency with which we treat the uh, opening and closing of golf courses is probably a little bit overstated. Oh, and the relentless letters to the editors of the newspapers and all the social media activity around golf courses, like, it's just kind of crazy to me. And and you're right. It's not only just that it has to happen on Monday, like, oh my God, we have to open them as soon as possible. It's also that, you know, like we were just saying, council cutting their expense budget sends a signal. This kind of sends a signal, right? Well, and the signal was made even worse because while golf courses are opening on Monday, in the conference, Premier Kenny actually said golf courses are opening Friday. Uh, you can golf this weekend. And he had to walk that back later uh, when his staff confirmed, no, it'll be Monday that golf courses open. Uh, so there was some real urgency for those golf courses to open up. Hmm. Um, the other thing that came up, and this was in the response to some of this, is there was a lot of commentary on Twitter and on Facebook and around the press conference saying isn't this too soon? And I think it's important just so we're all on the same page, at least from my understanding, not an epidemiologist, but my understanding of how we're handling and what Dr. Hinshaw has been saying is that we basically want everyone to get coronavirus. Our goal is not to prevent people from getting the coronavirus. It's to have everyone get it and get it through safely with capacity in our healthcare system so that any cases that become severe are able to get the best medical treatment possible. So to that end, today, Thursday, there was one new case in the Edmonton region. And only three yesterday and three the day before. You know, the numbers have been pretty low. And I would say that we have flattened the curve and almost too flat. Because people are right. When you reopen the economy, there's going to be a spike in cases. But this is something that we want. When we have this trickle of cases where it's one new case, two new cases, well below the capacity of our healthcare system, with Premier Kenny has said is right now, we've got plenty of space available. Well, that just prolongs how long we have to stay inside, how long we have to have these distancing measures in place, because it trickles the infection. We basically want our systems to be used as efficiently as possible. So we don't want to overwhelm the healthcare system because then regular people who have unrelated conditions get subpar treatment and they'll suffer. But we do want to be using the resources we have available so that we can get through this as effectively as possible. So a lot of discussion around this is, you know, you have a tap to turn on. The social interaction is you can increase the number of cases slowly by just tweaking that tap a little bit. And that's what this opening plan is, at least from my reading. So I'm sort of nervously excited about this. I'm probably not going to go get smashed at the bar on uh, May 14th, but I'm excited to be able to maybe browse in a store before I buy something. That That's very exciting to me. Yeah. I think a lot of people talk about it from the economic point of view, right? We need to get the economy back again. Um, you know, I, I think you're right that this is kind of about herd immunity, right? We, you know, the flattening the curve was never meant to prevent all of us from getting it. It's to make sure that we don't overwhelm the healthcare system. But plan A had to have been, we have a vaccine. 
And it doesn't yeah. look like we're going to have a vaccine for a while. So we go to a, a plan B situation. Um, you know, I do think there's still a risk here. There's still some unknowns. There's conflicting evidence around whether or not um, you can actually get it again after you've had it once or not. Um, you know, people still differ on how um, serious it is, what the death rate is, and also on how easy it is to transmit it to other people. We have quite a bit of evidence around that now, and, and scientists and, and medical people are starting to coalesce around the answers to those questions, but there's still a bit of risk involved in opening this up. And so, you know, they did say May 14th, but they're going to keep an eye on it. And if they start to see the numbers go in the wrong direction, that could change. With some of these things opening and with golf courses opening. Uh, one of my personal pain points is this week, the city announced some additional measures to uh, limit the spread. And one of them that I don't know why this one resonates with me so personally, because I'm not a huge fan of tennis. Sometimes I like to go over to the Ritchie Community League and slap around a tennis ball. But the city closed tennis courts and basketball courts. And this one, it really seemed to hit me as well, why are we doing that? Is this really based in evidence? Tennis, for example, if you're playing tennis with someone else, that's a very socially distant game. You're across the net from other people. No one else can join in and play. It's it's You can play doubles, sure, but it's ostensibly like you're in your isolation units playing a game, keeping active. It doesn't make a lot of sense to close tennis courts. That's not a huge vector, especially when you're keeping sports fields like soccer open. The same with basketball. Um, if you're a family of four and you want to go shoot some hoops, play some horse, that seems like a good way to use the amenities that we have. And yet these were places that were targeted this week for closure. It was interesting at the emergency management committee today that Councillor Knack sort of aligned with this line of questioning. He's like, tennis, basketball, these are weird choices. The transmission doesn't seem very high. And administration hemmed and hawed around the question. Mm. And they said, well, you know, like a tennis ball can like, you've got separate rackets, but you touch the tennis ball and then that might communicate between the two players. Of course, missing the point that the two players are already cohabitating. So it doesn't sure. really matter. And then they finally said, we're complying with provincial orders. And at that point, Nack said, oh, okay. And that was the end of the questioning. And I was really frustrated with that because I don't know if you've looked at the provincial orders page, but they're not clear at all. Um, exactly what you are and aren't allowed to do both changes day to day and is very ambiguous and up to interpretation. And that is where I've wondered throughout this process and this tennis issue is just a microcosm of the whole scenario. Where is the accountability in this issue? And where does the accountability stop? Because it feels like at some point some bureaucrats are making up rules and saying, because we're supposed to. And we're all accepting that as, oh, well, okay. And that that's rubbed me the wrong way this week. Hmm, I can tell. I'm not sure that I really have a problem with it. That is what they're doing. It is a bunch of bureaucrats making decisions. I think to be fair to them, trying to do the best they can under pretty stressful circumstances and themselves having to deal with, you know, not only just unclear information, but actively conflicting information. You just had to listen to that news conference today to see that this re relaunch plan, you know, doesn't really make any sense when you start to look into what does that actually mean. Um, but on the, the tennis courts, the basketball courts, isn't this really just about enforcement? Like we could open them and we could say 
that if you're cohabitating, then you can go and use these. But how do we know? Are we actually going to have somebody out there to enforce that? I mean, they said they were enforcing dog parks and things like that, and they sent some warnings. But if all of these things are open, isn't a city just trying to manage costs here? It even came up today with skate parks. Uh, One of the counselors suggested, well, we know we probably don't want to send enforcement officers to skate parks because youth skateboarders are not a demographic typically amenable to authority. Right. <laughs> um, and at that point, the city said, yeah, we could like station attendants like at bathrooms and have them to guide a proper usage. But there's just a cost associated with that. That's a little bit untenable right now. Right. Yeah. OK, I'll drop the tennis courts thing. My final point is that if we're getting golf back, give me tennis back, okay? Just just give it to me. Isn't tennis also a rich person sport, Troy? I just think it about is. Wimbledon, you know? <laughs> but I play tennis for free. I'm repatriating rich people's sports okay. for the poor people. Got it. I think we'll close this week, unfortunately, talking about Mike Nickel because we have to just briefly, and we're going to do it just briefly. Um He was back in the news this week a little bit more. And if you recall back in the previous episodes, we talked about how he made this meme of Andrew Knack throwing money into a fire, representing city taxpayer dollars going to bike lanes. Right. This week, uh, he made another image macro meme for his Facebook page, this time about Don Iveson with a quote, shameful and egregious on it, representing his raising of taxes on residents. And I don't want to highlight his behavior because he seems to revel in the attention. But this is, at this point, a pattern of behavior that is not going to stop. This is going to be how it is going to be for the next year and a half, unless something is done about it. And it doesn't appear that anything is going to be done about it. They were supposed to have a norms discussion, is what the mayor called it, on Wednesday afternoon, and they ran out of time. So they pushed that to today, Thursday. They did that in private, of course. So we don't actually know what happened there, what the outcome of that was. Maybe we'll find out when they start talking to the media. So you're right. We don't know if anything's been done about this or not. At this point, there have been, and we've seen tweets from the likes of Marina Bannister, who was banned from uh, Councillor Nichols' Facebook page for criticizing the Andrew Knack post. Uh, She has personally filed a letter of complaint with the Integrity Commissioner for Councillor Nichols' behavior. So there are ongoing cases with the Integrity Commissioner, and that could be Council's strategy right here. It's, well, let's not give Mike the political football. Let's just say, Integrity Commissioner, here's your 90 days, do your investigation, do your job, and we'll get whatever we get out of it. I think personally, it's a missed opportunity. If Mike Nichols is being actively antagonistic to Council, Maybe this is why I didn't win an election, but my inclination is to be antagonistic back. In Schedule C of the uh, Code of Conduct, Section J, it enfranchises council to give any sanction that they deem necessary. So, for example, council could pass a motion saying Mike Nickel must attend all council meetings wearing an I heart Don (laughs) Iverson hat. They're, they're clearly not dreaming big enough. Yeah, apparently not. I mean, the mayor's office said the mayor does not respond to debate at that level. So I don't think you're going to find support from him to do that. You did pull out a quote from Andrew Knack, though. Yeah, and I thought this Andrew Knack quote was really emblematic of just how bad this is. He said, quote, if that had been done in any other workplace, there would have been consequences for that. Which and is true, he, right? He's, he's right. right. 
I guess we're going to have this culture of harassment for the next year and a half unless we don't. That will be when Mike Nickel either wins or loses his run for mayor. And that, I think, will be the only way that this ends. But how this podcast ends is with an ad and then our closing remarks. We're going to tell you today about the Well Endowed podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation. It is hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink and produced by Lisa Pruden. The podcast explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The ECF helps people create endowment funds, and the podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. The most recent episode, or one of the most recent, is episode 69, which looks at the impact that the COVID-19 pandemic is having on people who experience homelessness in Edmonton. You can subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com. And that's all for this week. As always, you can check out tapreadedmonton.ca for the latest on what we're up to. Make sure you click that link in our show notes uh, for our voicelink.fm. Send us a question and we'll answer it on air. Anything you're wondering about, anyone you want to nominate for Knob of the Week, that's the place to do it. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.